hello and welcome to Chapel Hill. Uh, thanks for joining us today, especially for those of you who are joining us online. It's really great for me to be back from holidays, to be in the book of Revelation for our series, More Than Conquerors. One of the major themes in the book of Revelation is that our vision shapes our lives today. Our vision shapes our lives today. What we see, how we envision our lives, shapes the way we live today. And so far in the series, from Revelation chapter 4 to 11, the key question of the text has been, what do you see? What do you see? Do you see things from just your own human perspective? Or do you see things from God's perspective? Because what you see shapes the way you live today. The other major theme of the book of Revelation that you would have picked up by now is the theme of worship. Numerous times in John's vision, we see heavenly worship of God repeatedly. It happens again and again. We see a grand vision of the worship of God. And the unique contribution of the book of Revelation to a Christian's view of worship is that worship is warfare. Worship is warfare. How Christians engage in the fight of spiritual warfare is not with hands clenched, with weapons and guns in our hands, but with hands open, hands open in worship. That is how Christians win against the evil one's schemes. It is through all of life worship. And so the question in today's text, Revelation chapter 12 and 14, is who do you worship? And there are a lot of images and characters in today's passage, namely the woman, the dragon, as well as these interesting two beasts. And so we're just going to dive straight in and work through all of these characters And through it, we are going to unpack this idea that worship is warfare. So chapter 12 first introduces to us the woman. She is described in verse 1 as a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Read that in verse 1. So if you've got your Bibles open, Bible apps open, that's in verse 1. She's clothed in brightness. She's dressed up in this kind of cosmic jewelry. So when might a woman be clothed in brightness and get all jeweled up? When in their significant part of their life would a woman look like that? It's probably a bride on her wedding day. And God's people is commonly referred to as God's bride to express God's faithfulness to his people. The 12 stars identify the woman as Israel in terms of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the woman is God's faithful people from Israel to now, and it's embodied by Mary, who does give birth to Jesus, the Messiah, who is this offspring of Israel, the offspring of God's people. And this child, Jesus, we read, will rule the nations with an iron scepter. We read that in verse 5. And so that's the woman. It is God's people. It is the church. Next to come onto the scene is this enormous red dragon. And the dragon is clearly identified as Satan in verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down, that 
ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. We read in verse 9. And we read from verse 6 that the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. And this is referring to Matthew chapter 2, which gives an account of King Herod ordering the killing of all the children in Bethlehem in attempt to kill Jesus early on. And so Revelation shows us that it was Satan who was behind that plot. But the child is caught up to the throne of God at the ascension of Jesus after his death and resurrection, conquering sin, death, and Satan, the ascension of Jesus up to the heaven by virtue of his redemptive death coincides also with the throwing, hurling down of Satan to earth. Now, we shouldn't think of Satan's location on earth spatially, but metaphorically. It's describing Satan's power and influence. Can't touch heaven now, but it influences on earth. And so Satan can't touch Jesus. He's cast down from heaven, but the dragon is determined. And so the dragon continues to pursue the woman, God's people, the church. And so Satan now wages war against the people of God. And that's why it's tough to live as a Christian. The Bible is very clear about that. And so we read in verse 14 that the woman flees to the wilderness. And this imagery is drawn from the book of Exodus and where Israel had wandered through the wilderness. It's trying to convey that God's people, even today, are a wilderness people. We're a people who are not at home. This earth is not our home in a hostile world. But in the wilderness, just like in Exodus, God protects us. God nourishes us. And what chapter 12 provides for us is to see history from God's perspective. What it shows us is that the reality of Satan as a real key player in our world. History is portrayed as a conflict between Satan and the people of God. And so what chapter 12 should do to us, it should wake us up to the serious spiritual opposition faced by the church. But chapter 12 also reminds us that Satan is a defeated enemy. He can't touch Christ, and Christ is on our side. And so really, in the church, there is no place for apathy. We are at war with Satan, but there is no need for despair. For the victorious Jesus is with us, and he's for us. Revelation 12 reveals to us the reality of the conflict between the dragon, Satan, and the woman, God's people. So how does Satan attack God's people? How does he lead and influence to lead people astray? Well, that's where we get to Revelation 13. Revelation 13 shows us the methods, the strategies of Satan's warfare. And we see Satan's method and influence represented as these two beasts, who dominate the world and they persecute God's people. The first is the beast that comes out of the sea. And what this beast represents is political and military power of empires. Its ten horns, its seven heads, and ten crowns are a reworking of the images in Daniel 7, in Daniel's prophecy where he sees successive empires come and go. 
And so this healing of the mortal wound of the beast in verse 3 describes the way individual empires come and go. But political powers keep on emerging in different forms and in different centuries. The Syrian Empire died, but the Babylonian Empire reemerged. The Babylonians were replaced by the Persians. The Persians gave way to the Greeks and the Greeks to the Romans. And the Roman Empire at the time seemed as if it would last forever. But it too will fall and had fallen. And still today, empire rises and empires fall. The whole earth worships this idolatrous political power and cries out, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? It would seem their power would be invincible and political salvation seems so sure. And not all power is bad. Not all empires are evil. But this empire utters blasphemies. It takes place of God. It redefines morality and it demands ultimate allegiance. And so that inevitably brings into conflict with God's people. For the people of God are faced now with competing allegiances. And so it wages war against the church. And the result is that Christians are persecuted, imprisoned, and martyred. It's not too hard to find parallels of this today. One can think of the cult following of the supreme leader in North Korea. But those of us in the West, we don't live in such an idolatrous empire, but there are idolatrous elements to any society. We too live in a modern-day Rome or Babylon where governments are redefining morality. And what is John's exhortation to those who live in such under political power. Verse 10, chapter 12, he says, This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. We may not try to provoke opposition, but sometimes it's inescapable. And so our response must be patient endurance and faithfulness. But in the West, it may be that there is a bigger threat posed by the second beast, the beast coming out of the earth. The second beast looks like a lamb. It's a lookalike Jesus, but it speaks the words of the dragon. It speaks the words of Satan. You can say that the second beast represents what you would call or we would call soft power. It's not a power that comes from military power or government authority and control, but a power of influence through culture, ideology, that supports the political power of the first beast. Soft power is the power of winning hearts and minds. It's the power of winning hearts and minds through influence, persuasion. One could even say propaganda. The first beast comes out of the sea, just like the Roman Empire invading by boats. But the second beast comes out of the earth to represent the local elites that are within the cities of Asia Minor who become these influential propagandists for the Roman Empire. And the beast of the earth demands our allegiances. And the whole thing about having a mark was a condition to trade, to conduct commerce 
in the Roman Empire. It could have been an official stamp on a document which represented involvement in the imperial cult. This was their condition of trade. If you didn't have it, you were excluded from commerce and transactions. See, soft power is the power of peer pressure to demand conformity to culture and ideologies, not through military power, but through the power of persuasion and peer pressure. The power of the first piece called for patient endurance. The propaganda persuasion of the second beast calls for, verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and that number is 666. Wisdom is called for. For the second beast works in more subtle ways, but it is just as deadly. And so John invites us with biblical wisdom to question the propaganda and the persuasion of the second beast, to see through its images. And the thing about this whole number of the beast, which is 666, is what we've learned that seven is the biblical symbol for perfection and completeness. Six in relation to seven, with this kind of understanding, is imperfect. It's incomplete, but six is so close to seven, isn't it? It's trying to convey how deceptive the beast is. It's portraying that the dragon and the two beasts, they are a deceptive counterfeit god. The dragon and the two beasts make up a counterfeit trinity in comparison to the true and the living God, the triune God of the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And so this vision raises again this question to us, who do you worship? The vision tells us there are only two kinds of worship. You either worship Satan, who is deceiving you to follow a counterfeit God, and that he's front of the two beasts, but behind it, really, it's Satan as the real puppet master. Or you worship the true and living God. You either live for the hope of political salvation, which is short-lived as governments and empires come and go, or you live for the hope of eternal salvation in Jesus, who has the power to save you from sin and death. You are living, either living for a spirituality that is void of the power of the Holy Spirit, or you're living in true spirituality, empowered by the Holy Spirit. You are either living for the father of lies, represented as the dragon, known as Satan, or you are living for the father of all creation, represented as a faithful and loving father, known as Abba, Daddy, Papa our intimate Father Creator. So who do you worship? And that's why chapter 14 brings us to the heart of John's response to the counterfeit trinity. John, we read, has a new vision. Chapter 14 starts with, Then I looked, and John sees is Jesus the Lamb surrounded by 144,000, and that's representing all of God's true people. And the second beast put a mark on the people, giving them access to trade, to the Roman markets, to the glories of Rome. But the 144,000 had the mark of the Lamb, 
giving them access to all the glories of Jesus' kingdom. And what do we see God's people do? They're worshipping. They are singing. And so while the world worships the beast, God's people worship the lamb. Do you see that the world is at war and in conflict, not with different lifestyles or different philosophies or different ideology. What the world is at war in and is in conflict in is different worship. The worship of the beast or the worship of the lamb. The worship of Satan or the worship of God. We are at war not with different economies, different politics, or different philosophies. We are at war with a different system of worship. And John's vision of the worship of God's people, interestingly, is contrasted next to this vision of the dragon and the two beasts. So you've got to go, why are they there together? Well, it's showing to us that our worship is not only an act of our personal intimacy with God, it's also not just the act of mutual edification to one another. It's shown to us is worship is also an act of defiance. And I'm not saying an act of defining public health safety. I'm saying it's an act of defiance against the worship of this world. Because when we come together in corporate worship, when we call one another to worship the true God, we're also at the same time calling one another away from the worship of all other gods. When we come together in corporate worship, we announce our affections and our allegiances to Christ. And at the same time, we denounce our affections and our allegiance to what the world worships. The simple act of corporate worship is our act of warfare against Satan. Many Christians face the threat of persecution from an idolatrous political power, but many Christians, namely us, are threatened by the seduction of the idolatrous soft power, the second beast, the propaganda, the persuasion of our culture. And our calling is to seek wisdom from God to discern. And so what then will empower, fuel us to endure patiently, to be wise? Well, it's by our corporate worship. It's by our regular reaffirmation of our affections and our allegiance to Christ. It's our regular coming under the teaching and the preaching of the Bible to change the way we see the world to change the things we love, and to wisely change the way we live. It is in our corporate worship of Jesus that we will win hearts and minds for Jesus. So don't ever underestimate our worship on Sunday. Don't ever underestimate our fellowship in the Word, because our worship is warfare. Our worship is an act of defiance to worship Jesus Christ, the one and true and living God. For there is no other God but Jesus Christ alone. So come on, church. Let's worship. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedoms that we have in our state 
to come together in corporate worship. Despite the restrictions, despite the weather, Lord, we thank you that we can come in corporate worship as our act of reaffirming our allegiances and our affections to Christ. And through our worship, may the Holy Spirit empower us to endure patiently, to be wise from your scriptures, to not be led astray, but to endure patiently and joyfully in a marathon of worship until you return as your followers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.